Welcome to the We Talk Careers podcast brought to you by Women in ETFs. This is Christine Delano, and I'm thrilled you've joined me. If you're pursuing excellence in your own career or intrigued by the hustle required for a career on Wall Street, this podcast is for you. We've made all this advice accessible. Grab your own Thrive Guide with a workbook on leadership skills at christinedelano.com. So put aside that massive to-do list and let's get inspired. We're diving into Wall Street careers, specifically in the exciting space of exchange-traded funds. Today, we're starting at the top. What is it to be the head of ETFs? How do you oversee all the aspects of your firm's fund business, and what does it take to get there and be successful? We have Greg Friedman and Leah Wald with us. Welcome to the We Talk Careers podcast. Both of you, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Great. So, Leah, let's start with you. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Christine, again, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Leah Wald. I'm a co-founder and the CEO of Valkyrie Investments. Valkyrie is a crypto specialized asset management firm with a series of trusts, SMA strategies, a hedge fund, and ETFs, Bitcoin futures, as well as miners. Wonderful. Anything about your personal life? What, what, what drives you each day beyond ETFs? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, really a tech entrepreneur first. This isn't my first rodeo, which uh, brought me into this space. I have been working in Bitcoin asset management since 2016. So I guess I've uh, been on this crypto roller coaster for maybe too long. Um, Valkyrie was established in 2020. So uh, even crazier ride since, since that began. But what drives me really is emerging technologies. I think that Bitcoin is absolutely revolutionary. And I think that patch, packaging uh, these types of emerging technologies in a vehicle that's accessible is just very exciting. Excellent. Thank you, Leah. What about you, Greg? Can you give us an introduction to yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me again. Greg Freeman. I run the ETF uh, initiative for Fidelity Investments. Uh, I've been involved with ETF since 1996, so it's been just a blessing and a, an amazing thing to see to watch it grow from 30, 40 people that knew what an ETF was, or that could even spell what ETFs were, to where we are today. So it's been an exciting uh, development, and for me, it's, the passion is being able to build and develop and innovate. Um, ETFs were, you know, started with the mindset of how to help investors be better, how to help it. You know, advisors be smarter. Um, so it's always been a kind of an altruistic mindset for ETFs. And it's been fun to be part of that, watch that grow and to really have the innovation around it. You know, and on a personal side, it's, it's family and friends. It's how to create that balance between the passion and the demands of Wall Street versus, you know, what's really important in life, which is family and friends. Oh, absolutely. We're all chasing that balance for sure. Sometimes it's an integration. Sometimes it's a Sometimes it's at a balance. Sometimes it's a total separation, right? Um, and we're all finding it for sure. It was really fun before we even, you know, started recording to to get to know both of you. And um, so I'm excited for this conversation. And although we're embarking on this new season where we're drilling into the challenges and rewards of all these different ETF careers, and obviously starting with the top on this one, our listeners love when we start with stories. So can you each tell us? sort of a recent day in a life, like what does it look like to be you and something that maybe happened recently that exemplifies your role? So Greg, you want to kick us off? 
Sure. No, it, it, it's a funny question because my previous roles um, at iShares and at Russell Investments, uh, there's a different understanding of what ETFs were. And when I joined Fidelity almost 11 years ago, it was, you know, build this capability. It's important to the firm, but recognizing we had a handful of people and 60, 70,000 employees that were really focused and understood the importance and the, and the specialty of mutual funds. So part of the job on a daily basis is still being that voice of the ETF, raising its profile, helping understand why it's different and the clients and the client's needs are different. So it, it's fun because Fidelity is a phenomenal firm focused on doing what's right for clients, using our insight, using our research to help our investors' needs. But we're able to now take that into a different wrapper with ETFs. And yeah, it's just as important as mutual funds, but it's a different way and a different vehicle and different clients and you have to market and distribute to those clients differently. So it's, you know, a lot of it is how to take a small group of ETF individuals and leverage the power of 80,000 other employees to really deliver the best of fidelity in this case to our clients. So, you know, most of my day in life, yeah, there's trading and there's the PM side and the operation side that goes along with all our ETF jobs, but it's also the, the enjoyment of taking something and creating something new within a phenomenal organization such as Fidelity. Oh, that's great. What about you, Leah? What does your day look like? I would like to say it follows a pattern, but often cases, uh, the biggest fires get escalated to the CEO, and it doesn't always follow that trajectory. Um, so one thing, though, that is standard, I do spend at least an hour every single morning reading industry-specific news. So ETFs as well as crypto, that was something I learned early on, and I've parsed it down from three hours to, to one to two. I think that that's very important to do in the morning to start off the day. After that, I try to keep in touch and meet with all our executives, even if it's a quick message on Slack or a phone call to make sure that I know exactly what they're doing so that I can step back, feel very comfortable as well as in the know. After that, it's usually calls from shareholders, um, and that can go from a variety of stakeholders. Um, so that is, I'd say, a typical day. Now, I do work in the cryptocurrency industry, and the nexus of crypto and ETFs creates extreme volatility, as everyone likes to say. So a story from this week that I should say did not follow the mold about a couple of days ago, Bitcoin swung 10% uh, appreciated on a rumor, and this can happen often, uh, as did the ETFs in the markets that uh, have exposure uh, to the spot market through futures. And that was all based on a rumor. And within minutes, when the rumor was debunked, it also crashed in similar volatility terms. During that time, I got a lot of phone calls. Was it true? Is the rumor true? Is BlackRock approved? Um, so I'd say that, again, with my hat, I think it's important from a very high level to remain in touch with executives, follow up all industry trends, speak to all shareholders. Yet at the same time, when fires get escalated, it becomes the, the phone calls that you have to take sometimes. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. And I imagine rumors, especially in your field, are specifically fire inducing. <laughs> so that's that's great. I also love that you're checking in with your, you know, so your senior team 
without sort of that expectation that if you're calling them, there's something wrong. So that's that's sort of a beautiful way of sort of existing. And maybe, Greg, you can sort of speak to that as well. Because my next question is a little bit more about, you know, certain people have strengths that are more task-oriented or more people-oriented, right? And and I don't think it's a it's a good or bad thing if you are someone that really likes to sort of drill into things, get things done, you're focusing on your job responsibilities, or if you're a little bit more involved in collaboration and relationship management. Most roles have both of these, but often they swing in sort of one direction or the other. So maybe, Greg, you can kind of take us through a little bit of, of how you see your role and, and whether it's evolved over time. Well, I think you know, in a group dynamic, as you build teams, different people have different skills. Some are steady 80s who are going to sit there every day, deliver incredibly high-quality work, and just get the work done that in some ways is, is not um, celebrated. Others are going to be more of the collaborators or strategists. And you need everyone to feel equally important, equally valued, and have time. You know, too often I see cases where, you know, the high performers are rewarded and the steady entities, which are just as important, are ignored. And you get this uh, misalignment. You don't get the sense of first team or trust. And it's, you know, the manager's role to have a little bit of everybody. And if you have all the same type of person on your team, the chance of success is going to be less than if you had, you know, diversity, not just diverse in terms of gender or race or religion or knowledge, but really experience and, and qualifications and, and style. So that diversity brings out the richness and allows you to have to leverage different people. So some days I'll have, you know, a task I need help with that's very quantitative driven. I know who I can go to or I need to do a presentation, or we need to do a strategy session to senior management, that's a different person. But by leveraging everyone's strengths, it really brings out that richness of the team and this notion of uh, first team or you know, first values. For me, you know, I've always had the, the notion of my job is I have a team of smart people. I have a team of, of people that can really execute the highest level. For me, my job is how to make them successful, how to give them the best opportunity to be successful, and to help move the firm in the right direction. So for me, it's not the, the ringleader. That sounds kind of kind of an old school reference, but it's how do I how do I take my team and use utilize all their strengths so they can be successful and we can get you know our jobs done, advance the firm, and really hit our objectives for the year. Let me just follow up with that real quick. So has that always been your skill set? Has it always been collaboration and relationship, or did you start in your career? being more job responsibilities, get things done, and then sort of developed the people skills? After college, I went to law school for one year, and it was determined that that was not the greatest fit by me or probably the school administration, probably (laughs) a joint decision at at that point. Um, And I went into finance with my first role being fund accounting. You know, it's a great way to learn how funds work, how the markets work, trading, settlement, operations. And that's very solo job specific. Your job is to do X, Y, and Z. But as you grow in your, my career, at least as I've grown, you know, I have felt that most successful people are the ones that can build relationships, that can problem solve, that can build teams, that can build environments for people to really be individual, be themselves, and be successful. Because the industry is full of smart people. I mean, they are some really 
amazingly qualified, brilliant people in our industry. But the difference, at least the skills that I think I bring, is how do I solve problems? How do I think analytically? And how do I create teams? And I think in some ways that's, in my mind, what a good leader should be doing. Oh, well said. Well said. What about you, Leah? Are you task? Are you people? Has that changed over time? Yeah, I'd say my role is specifically people-oriented. And it's interesting because I very much identify as an operative. I love being in the weeds. I love being task-oriented and being within the operations. But I've learned that that is not the role that I should be focused on. So I have learned that. Uh, People-oriented for the CEO, again, as mentioned, means picking up the phone call if any service provider is having an issue. That's a relationship that's important, whether an investor or a board member or key executive is having an issue or even wants to discuss some of the challenges that they're having. That's some of the most important necessary work that I can do in my role, in my opinion. The CEO's uh, boss, the CEO does have a boss and my boss is the board and the shareholders are the boss's board. And I think that's important to remember that, again, it, it is that investor relations piece that also becomes important. And given all the guidelines and compliance issues and just regulatory frameworks that need to be followed for ETF launches, for just generally around ETFs, it is really important to ensure that everybody one, feels very comfortable with how your company is being run financially, operationally, et cetera. And that does require good relationship management. So I would say it's people-oriented. And again, as mentioned previously, if I can't trust my executive team, then I'm in big trouble. So as a CEO, I like to step back, be in lockstep with my executives and let them run their domains. And I think it's not appropriate for me to jump in the weeds unless unless they ask me to, but they should be leading their projects. They like to do so. So I actually would say my hat is solely people oriented. Ah, that makes sense uh, for your role, for sure. And you guys both seem like you had a pretty smooth transition from that idea of like, I'm really good at what I do to now I'm managing people. And I actually can remember one of my first executive roles was head of technology strategy for a major broker dealer. And I had gotten that role because I was good at the tasks. I was great at getting projects done. And I was great at like recognizing how to do it and how to problem solve. I wasn't as great at understanding people and understanding how to build a team. But the danger of all that is that he didn't recognize I wasn't really good at it, you know? And so there were some bumpy pieces where folks had to kind of speak into me and help me. And I had to be open to that help of becoming a much better people-driven person. And I feel like now, goodness, my whole life is, you know, working with others and developing relationships and sustaining those relationships and helping people be successful. You know, the whole reason why I wanted to do this podcast, but that's not how I started. And I wasn't as smooth as you both were, um, which is, you know, saying something about that transition, because often we do get promoted into places that maybe we aren't as successful in. So I love that folks listening to this and saying, well, I'm in this analyst role now, I would love to be head of ETFs or head of a product group or, or something like that? And what 
does it take? And I love how consistent, but also individual you both were in your answer. So, you know, thank you for that. Maybe we could back up a moment and you guys can both tell us what really led you to pursue the roles that you're in. Um, was it a pursuit? Um, did you know that you wanted to be doing what you're doing now, you know, a decade ago or, or longer? Or did you sort of find yourself with this opportunity and then recognized it? Maybe, Greg, you want to kick us off? Sure. I think the answer is probably both. After my funding county, I was a portfolio manager. I managed uh, non-U.S. equity, ERISA, passive funds. Um, and I loved it. I loved the, the investing. I loved the trading. It was fantastic. And I had this opportunity to be uh, one of the earliest portfolio managers for the webs, the first international ETFs. I raised my hand and the rest is history. So, you know, did I know in 1996 what ETFs were going to be? No, because there was maybe 30 of us that knew what an ETF was. But I liked how they operated. I liked the fact that they involved a lot of external parties in a, in a, in a new emerging ecosystem. Um, and then I fell in love with the product. I fell in love with how they operated, how they were different, the advantage of ETFs versus mutual funds and ERISA you know, collective funds and different trusts. And then you saw the industry grow and you saw and you felt the mindset of trying to help advisors be better and help individuals. It was a very pure type of mindset and the culture and the people. And even between firms where you're supposed to be competitors, we're all still friends. The ETF industry is pretty small. We know everything of what everyone's doing. And it's, it's that community, it's the ecosystem. So as the industry grew and I grew in my career, you know, I had experiences, I had passions, and it was a natural progression for me to, to run the business. And it's always was a goal for the last 10, 15 years. So it, part of it was a little luck. You know, I'm a big believer that you work hard to get luck. Luck just doesn't happen to you by happenstance. So through hard work and you know, doing the right things, you get opportunities. And I got lucky with my opportunity and I took advantage of it and I followed the passion and I followed the excitement and I followed the innovation and to a place where I knew where I wanted to be at the stage of my, my career. Thank you. What about you, Leah? Yeah, previous to this current role, I was working uh, for an advisor. So I come from the advisor space and we specialized in cryptocurrency investing, but there was only one option in the market. Uh, and at the time that was GBTC. Um, so there was deficiencies from our ability to allocate as an advisor. And I always wanted an ETF vehicle and understood the importance of that wrapper to have exposure to the cryptocurrency industry. So when we launched Valfrey, that was always the goal and the understanding that we need to create a product and it needs to be an ETF structure to create, a, again, a vehicle that advisors and other allocators can actually have exposure to this asset class. So it came from a desire to actually invest in this product, knowing its necessity and demand and desire, and then going on the other side of all right, let's create it since we already know that we want it. So both of you have talked quite a bit about how you're working with people to get things built, to communicate the importance of whether it be ETFs or whether it be sort of investment strategies for uh, across your organizations and with your investors. 
Can you give us a little bit of specifics around how you make decisions? So I imagine you have a lot of voices coming at you, right? You're building great teams, which also means you're building opinionated teams, right? People coming from, you know, different walks of life and different experiences. And that diversity is going to create some maybe tension um, or friction in directions to go. So can you take us through either kind of what your decision-making process looks like, or if you have a story of recently having to make one of those, can you share it? Maybe Leah, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, so the process I usually take is number one, it's important to define the problem. Um, that may seem obvious, but it's not. Uh, oftentimes it's difficult to understand what the root problem is and that's what needs to be solved. After that, I think it's necessary to gather as much information as possible, important information, but at the same time, even tertiary data points are important to take in. After that, generate alternatives. You need to know all the different options before you can evaluate, assess, and make a decision off of those alternatives. After that, we work in finance, we work in ETFs, what are the risks? Uh, that's looking at compliance, that's looking at competitive edge, that's looking at everything. Um, after that, as both of us mentioned, it's important to work with our team. So for the most part, it's important to me not to make unilateral decisions. So I try to get stakeholder involvement there uh, and then make your decision and communicate effectively. And I think that that last part also needs to be stated, which is there's a lot of issues with opacity. There's also a lot of issues if you are attempting to be transparent yet do not communicate in an appropriate manner. Um, so I do think even especially in my seat, it's very important to share and sometimes overshare, especially with your team, but only if it can be communicated effectively. And that does matter on explaining why are you making this decision, but also why are you making this decision in light of your overall strategy? Because otherwise you, you, you can't keep your team together marching in the same place. Ah, makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Leah. What about you, Greg? Is there anything different that you or, or maybe a nuance you would add to, to that decision-making process? Yeah, I mean, I think, early, yeah, we all learn and we all develop and we all get better at what we're doing. In my early career, I probably thought I knew the answer and we would go in that direction. And I got some, some coaching from my manager, my manager's manager at the time, saying, you know, you don't underestimate the notion of co-creation. Even if you know the answer and you have the right answer, most cases you might, but sometimes you don't. You know, you have to co-create and you have to work as a team to pull together. And you know, I think you want to bring people along. You want them to have a voice. It's important for them to feel like they've got skin in the game, that they're part of this development, that they're part of the team. It goes back to that notion of first team. And you, you want anyone to, to put input, to feel like that, that they have stake in this. Now, in the end, you might need to make a decision that's you know, not aligned with the rest of the people. And you have to have this notion of alignment and agreement and figure out through your culture, the use of those words. Am I aligned or do we have to have agreement? And that helps in the decision-making process. So I think, you know, you want people to be involved. You want different viewpoints to be raised. It brings out a richness in the discussion and probably you might even go a different direction you thought you were gonna go into coming into this, the situation. But if you have the right language and the right tools uh, of alignment and agreement and listen and make sure you have the right intention, you always have the right answer. It might not come easily, 
you might want to go in circles for a bit and look at yourself like, you know, why is it taking so long? But in the end, usually you get the best product out of it. So I think it's, it's, you know, those are the factors for me that, you know, goes into decision-making. I think that's great. Alignment and agreement. I remember working for a fantastic CIO early in my career and he would really empower the team with their different thoughts, you know, so like you were really encouraged to, you know, not just research and understand it, but actually to speak up on decision-making. But once a decision was made, we're all on the same bus, right? So there's not this idea that we're going to kind of come back to it, or we're going to have a subversive culture where, you know, we've got these like fractions, you know, coming off on the different ways, or we're not going to be too much in sort of a retrospective of should have, could have, would have. So maybe if you could just drill down a little bit on that alignment versus agreement, can you define that for us a little bit in terms of how you use it? Sure. And, you know, it all goes back to this notion of first team. So some decisions, you know, you have to have full agreement on. It's a significant issue. It's something that is strategic. You know, the team has to be aligned. And you just, in the beginning of the conversation, you, you frame it that way. You'll have to be agreed on this to move forward. There's other decisions that might not be as um, important, or you might be a stakeholder, but you might not be a lead stakeholder. So they want your viewpoint, but you're not the end stakeholder. Those are type of uh, decisions where alignment. Yeah, I can be aligned. I might not agree 100%. I might have had a different viewpoint, but if this is how the team feels, I'm aligned. And I think those are important definitions because what you don't want is misalignment or false alignment where someone goes in and says, yeah, I can be aligned. And then they leave the conference room and they you know, say the, the exact opposite or do the exact opposite. And that erodes trust and erodes that teamwork and that sense of first team. So if you have those agreements and you have the, that language to live by, it keeps that false alignment. It keeps that um, negative mindset out of it. I can guarantee it. But it does help uh, because you always want to go forward with that sense of first team that I understand my role and I understand the difference between we have to agree on this or can I just be aligned with it? Oh, thank you so much. That was a great, great explanation. And I think we can all hearken back to times where folks have left a conference room and there's been that scuttlebutt that's, you know, continued on. And so having a culture that really takes the precedence of alignment prior to leaving the room is so important. So yeah, thanks for that great reminder. I don't think we've done a, um, a podcast on even that topic before. So I'm actually going to jot that right down because I think we could spend 30 minutes just talking about that. Easy. Um, yeah. So we have uh, listeners from all walks of life on this. We had started this thinking that it was uh, kind of a women in ETFs, knowing we had male listeners as well, but they were all kind of in the ETF industry. Now we've got folks around the globe that are doing lots of different things, but are just sort of interested in the space, interested in what they can learn, interested in your sort of expertise as you've grown into this roles. But maybe you can narrow down your advice on this last question or our second to the last question on what advice would you offer to others that are actually looking to maybe move into this role? What's something specific that either they can work on or they should know um, before they sort of set their sights on on this role. And Leah, do you want to take that first? Sure. I think it's two things. I think it's networking ruthlessly. And I'll come back to that, what I mean. 
Uh, and also honing your skill set with introspection. If you can truly understand strengths and weaknesses, whether it's technical uh, and you need to brush up on how to understand how to read financial statements if you're moving into the CEO role or you need to uh, do something more technical or if it's something as simple, well, it's not simple, but uh, something like taking on a career coach and learning more uh, about leadership skills or communication skills. So I think it's number one, understanding um, what the role is you want to move into, which is what this podcast is about. And then number two, what do you need to learn more about yourself in order to have all those skills attributable to being successful in this role? I think that's very important. Um, after that, what I mean by networking ruthlessly, not at all that it's networking heartlessly, but I think you need to prioritize meeting everybody that you can in the industry. And that is from service providers, the again, fund admin space to, you know, uh, whether it's compliance professionals, whether it's issuers, uh, everyone that touches the space, I think is important to get to know because you don't know who knows who. And to your point, it's a very small industry uh, and who can guide you in the appropriate way. Because again, it's easy to get excited about a brand name, uh, whether it's the top issuers, you know, in the industry and you like something flashy, but people do get attracted to that type of company doesn't mean that you're going to be happy and stay there. It's usually culture and role and who your manager is and are you happy in a daily life? So I would say again, one of our employees learned that she just loves compliance and she's working at a compliance agency that specializes in ETFs right now. And she came in in the operations division for Valkyrie. Um, so it's very interesting where your career is going to go, um, but it's only by networking with everybody that you can, treating everybody with respect and being open to their feedback and learning what they do that I think you're going to actually be successful at moving into a role that you're happy with with longevity in this industry. Because again, we all touch it differently, uh, not just our roles, but whether the respective industry or verticals you're coming at the ETF industry in. And I think it just takes that first step by making the phone call, going to the conference and honing the skills that you need to move into that role. Thank you, Leah. What about you, Greg? What advice do you offer for others that may be pursuing sitting in your seat one day? Yeah, the industry's changed quite a bit, and there's a, a notion of how you have to get in the industry. You know, you get an internship, you get a job, you know, you work your way through, and, you know, there's kind of this mindset of how you get in the industry. And the advice I'm giving, you know, my wife and I, our kids, their friends, is there's different ways of, of doing it. You know, you don't always get the opportunity to straight line. You know, life is, is a journey, and you have to be able to adjust. So a lot of kids that I've talked to, you know, they try to go through the internship, go through the front door, you get the job offer, you work your way through, and that's great. And that's a fantastic way and a kind of the plan A to do it. But we're not always given plan A. We have to figure out plan B and C and D. And if you have a passion and you have a dream and this is what you want to do, you'll get it. But you might take different paths. You might take longer. You might take shorter. You might take a left and go take a right. So it's that ability to be flexible to know where the North Star is, tack when you need to, 
and learn and enjoy the journey the way, but it is a journey. There's no easy answer to any of this. And if I think if you have that mindset, you know, you should get where you want to go in the end. Yes. And it kind of harkens back to before we um, started recording, Leah, you had said, you know, how important it was to sort of follow your passion. And I just love that you guys both share that advice for folks is to not just be all about the trappings or all about the title or, you know, what it is, but just having this introspection on what that burning passion is within you and making sure that you're feeding it throughout your career. So yeah, just excellent. So as our listeners know, I'm a fiction writer. I love it. I write um, suspense set on Wall Street. Um, I was just talking to my literary agent today. She's like my big cheerleader, which is so weird to have a cheerleader in my life. Like, I feel like my whole career, it was, you know, great people I got to collaborate with. And now I just have somebody who's just always saying such wonderful things to me. Um, and I, it's like almost suspicious of it. But I absolutely love writing. I love reading. Um, one of the things that I think sort of helps change our trajectory in life as we become more empathetic with people is that we read more and that we understand more of where people are coming from and what people are challenged with and that we don't stay in our bubble. And some of that can come through travel and in lots of other things, but reading is really just an accessible way of knowing that. So I tend to read more fiction now, um, but, you know, I'm open to fiction or nonfiction books or if you don't have time for reading, then, you know, whatever else you're, you're reading in the morning to get caught up. But do you have a recommendation of a book or something that um, you would like to share with our listeners? Greg, I'll start with you. Yeah, we do enough reading about our industry and we have our, our updates and articles and things we read. So I try in the few moments I do get to read something outside the industry. So the one I'm reading right now is uh, 24. It's a book about Willie Mays. Mm, excellent. Is there a, there's a movie too, right? Isn't there a movie made from that? That was, I think, Jackie Robinson. That was, uh, that was for me too. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah, transposed my, my little dyslexic brain for today. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. We will add that to the bookcase. What about you, Leah? I'm with you. I actually uh, almost solely read fiction, and I'm actually a huge sci-fi and dystopian novel junkie. So right now I am reading The Every by Dave Eggers. I feel like you definitely understand Dave Eggers' satire. I love Dave Eggers. The Every is about pretty much social media company taking over the world. And I find it very fascinating because I'm at one point terrified, uh, second, laughing my butt off, and then third, actually finding myself very introspective about the potential evils and uh, destruction to humanity that uh, monopolies in the social media industry and general search engines can create, if not kept in check. So uh, that's where my brain is right now. Oh, I love it. We have not added that to our bookcase and I have read it and it raises so many questions. And I agree with every single piece of that, that you are faced with something that is at one moment hysterical and then just like terrifying, you know, because you can, it's so realistic and it's just it's so difficult. All of yeah. it. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I found myself laughing at myself throughout the book so far. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you both for coming on the show today. It's just such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for 
you know, just being transparent about your roles, um, the success that you've had, as well as giving such great advice to our listeners. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. I hope this is not just information, but you let it be transformational in how you think about your career. I'm rooting for you. If you're an Apple user, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to leave a rating and a review. Your ratings and reviews tell Apple that this is a podcast worth listening to. And in turn, your reviews will help We Talk Careers get in front of more listeners looking to succeed, just like you. And while you're there, go ahead and hit that follow button because there's going to be another brand new episode and you don't want to miss it. Until then, keep thriving. Thank you for listening.